Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And we are trying to get back on the weekly format. I want to apologize. Last week we didn't have a podcast. We actually recorded... What I want to say is our best podcast of all time, but we had... You'll uh, never know, <laughs> so we can say it was the best ever, and you know you can't disprove it. I had some problems with the software, and our staff was traveling uh, last week. We tried to record it early, but by the time I noticed the file problems on Friday, everybody was out of town, and there was nothing to be done. So we're sorry about it. Uh, it, it was not intentional, but we're not going away. So I want to apologize for missing last week and let you know that we won't be back next week either because of Thanksgiving. But that's on purpose, but starting, uh, resuming full regular schedule uh, right after Thanksgiving and, and looking ahead to the legislative session. So we're hoping to get things back on track and be with you every Friday as normal. But in the absence of last week's podcast, we've had a huge busy week. We've got a lot to talk about, basically two weeks worth of news. But this week started uh, with some big news on the higher education front. Kevin, a familiar face uh, and the college and university scene is retiring. Who was it and what happened? Well, Bob Custer, the president of Boise State University, rather suddenly announced his retirement on Wednesday. This caught a lot of folks off guard. Uh, Custer has been president at Boise State since 2003. And it's hard to kind of quantify. Well, it, it, it's, it's hard to kind of put into context just how much has changed at Boise State since 2003. The enrollment growth has been has been rapid. Uh, there's been a lot of capital uh, work on the campus to the tune of about $450 million of capital projects. I mean, the, the campus looks a lot different in 2017 than it did in 2003. Uh, Custer has tried to work on a lot of different academic uh, programs. Uh, his his catchphrase from the beginning, from day one, was to try to turn Boise State University into a metropolitan research institution of, of distinction. He's really tried to focus on trying to build research, grad programs, a lot of uh, programs focused on, on urban policies as a university in a capital city. It's just a lot of change, a, a lot of transformation on, on that campus. And along the way, I, I think it's fair to say that Custer has probably become the most visible uh, university president in the system, uh, certainly as he you know, became the, uh, the senior member of the, uh, the college president fraternity in Idaho, I think certainly he became uh, highly visible. Sure, and overseeing uh, the state's largest university mm-hmm. in the state's largest in the city, state capital. Uh, that in itself uh, comes with some visibility for sure. So, yeah, so I think his departure uh, resonates and kind of reverberates a little bit more simply because of his uh, of his profile. Uh, you know, you, you see him at the state house a lot, not just during Education Week when he's making a budget presentation to to the uh, Joint Finance Appropriation Committee. He's just he's out there a lot. He's in the uh, in the political arena quite a bit. I mean, he's a former lieutenant governor and, and state yeah. senator in Illinois before he moved to Idaho. So. Yeah, definitely cut a high political profile around the state. What do we know, Kevin, about the timing and what happens next? It's not that he cleared out his desk and uh, took the next plane down to Florida, right? Mm -hmm. What what do we know about the timing and what happens next? He'll be on the job until June 30th, and we don't know much about the timetable in terms of the search for a successor. 
But what we do know is what we're seeing uh, with the president's search at Idaho State University and at Lewis Clark State College, this is a process that takes several months. What the State Board of Education has been trying to do in those schools is uh, set up a process where you meet with stakeholders, you kind of lay the groundwork before you start really looking at applicants. Then you open up the, the application process. Then you try to pick some finalists. You bring some finalists in for interviews. It's a process that takes several months um, just to kind of do a back-out schedule. Uh, Arthur Valis announced his retirement at Idaho State University in August. I, I believe the state board is hoping to have a successor named there by March. So you, you do the math. This is a process that you know, could take you know, seven months at Idaho State University. So, you know, you know we'll see how long it takes uh, to to work the process through at Boise State University. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's something that we'll continue uh, to update. We'll follow uh, the process and we'll follow, I assume there will be a search committee and some level of a national search. We'll let people know right. how that takes place and, and what some of the salient details and dates and deadlines are as we get a little closer into that. But you sort of mentioned this issue that I want to get into, Kevin. Um, the Boise State opening is not the only opening in Idaho's college and university system. And this comes at an interesting time in higher education. Because of the turnover, because we have some brand new higher education reform recommendations on the table, kind of get into the bigger picture beyond the immediacy of Bob Custer leaving Boise State and that individual job opening. What does this mean for the the overall higher education picture and the outlooks for reform? Well, it adds up to a big year of uh, turnover and maybe a little bit of turmoil along the way. As I wrote about it this week, I, I talked to Ray Stark, who's uh, with the uh, Boise Metro Chamber of Commerce. He's been involved in uh, state politics. He's been, you know, he's worked at the state house for a lot of years before he joined, uh, went to work at the chamber. So he's watched this process for about 40 years and I asked him if he's ever seen anything like this, where you have three university, uh, where you have three president searches going on at the same time. He couldn't remember a time where this occurred. And you have to keep in mind, Idaho could have had a fourth search going on because uh, Chuck Staben, the president at the University of Idaho, he was a finalist for a job last month at the University of New Mexico. Uh, University of New Mexico went a different uh, path on that. You could have had all four uh, major institutions in the state uh, meeting new presidents, but three is is pretty significant and, and somewhat historic over over time. And it does come at a time where the state is really trying to wrestle with some some big questions about how to reshape higher education policy. You know, years into this process of trying to get more kids to to go to college and complete their their college and trying to boost those post-secondary completion numbers to not much avail. I mean, those numbers have stayed flat for several years. I, the state is really trying to look at uh, some higher education reforms. Uh, we had a task force earlier this year that uh, issued uh, 13 recommendations to try to, you know, to, to take steps to improve that post-secondary uh, completion rate. All of these university presidents, uh, the ones who are staying and the ones who are leaving, were part of that process. Uh, business leaders like, like Ray Stark, uh, legislators, uh, State Board of Education members, so a, a pretty broad group of folks working on trying to figure out how to uh, you know, 
how to uh, get closer to that 60% goal that has been a really tough, uh, tough nut to crack. Yeah, for sure. And I almost wonder, that's not the only turnover. I almost wonder if we're going to hold off on some of these recommendations for a minute because we know that Idahoans are going to elect a new governor this mm-hmm. time next year. We know that uh, there will be turnover in the legislature. Importantly, two, the two heads of the Joint Budget Committee uh, have said that they will not seek re-election uh, after their term ends at the end of next year. So a lot of the pieces are going to be moving inside higher ed, inside the state house, in the governor's office. Uh, a lot's moving, right? A lot's well, up in the air. That's a really good point because, you know, let's face it, the higher education task force, that is, that's Butch Otter's, you know, swan song, if you will, on higher education policy. I mean, Governor Otter has been talking about the 60% goal for the better part of a decade. And this is probably his last stab at trying to uh, get some policies in place to make some make some progress on getting closer to that sixty percent goal, but he's not going to be there uh, past uh, the end of two thousand and eighteen. We'll have a new governor, and it's hard to tell. Well, we don't know who the new who the next governor is going to be. First of all, and we don't really know for sure until uh, the new governor takes office exactly what the governor, the next governor, is going to want to do in terms of higher education policy. Uh, may look at the task force recommendations and say, yeah, these are good ideas, let's run with them. May look at them and say, eh, wait a minute, I want to go in a different route. Yeah. So we don't know. And when you don't know, uh, legislators may look at this whole issue and say, hey, let's, let's just slow down and let's see what happens uh, in the elections and we can come back in 2019. Yeah. As I talked to folks on the task force about that this week, I got mixed responses. Talked to Wendy Horman, uh, state representative from Idaho Falls, and she was pretty emphatic about, well, there are things that we're trying to do here with this task force that are trying to improve opportunities for for students to go on and continue their education. That should transcend politics. That should be something we're working on anyway. We shouldn't use politics as an excuse to put off action. So... Yeah, you know, there's two schools of thought. Do you do you do you keep pushing for this because it's something that we need to be working on? Do you hold back because you don't really know if you're going to be wasting energy on policies and changes that are just going to uh, go by the wayside after the 2018 elections? It's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Yeah, I appreciate it. You've got two stories on the homepage at IdahoEdNews.org that you spent most of this week working on, Kevin. So if people want to find out a little bit more uh, about Custer's retirement, they can find that story from earlier in the week. And if they want to find out a little bit about where we go next and the politics of these higher education openings and the higher education reform recommendations, that story is out there too. i got to say this is a good time for us to be ramping up our own coverage of higher education, which is something that we committed to earlier this year. And the timing really works out nicely. I know that you're going to be taking the lead on that, Kevin. And uh, you'll have your plate full uh, yeah. going forward. And in December, I'm going to have a series looking at this whole uh, 60% goal issue and this whole post-secondary uh, completion issue. Why has Idaho struggled to try to get an improvement in that after spending years and a lot of money to try to move those numbers? So we're going to take an in-depth look at the situation, at, at the issue. We're going to talk, uh, I'm going to be talking to uh, President Custer. I've got an interview lined up. Uh, in the next couple of weeks with him, talking to politicians, talking to uh, 
most importantly, talking to students and counselors about what's happening on the ground. So I'm looking forward to getting that. Uh, we should be uh, running that series in the middle of December. All right. We will keep you posted on the Extra Credit Podcast and let you know right before that comes out. But I'm really looking forward uh, to that and seeing that finished project. So thank you so much, Kevin, for uh, taking so much time to focus on the details uh, of these very important issues. I want to step back in time about one week uh, to last week's Idaho School Boards Association conference up in North Idaho. This is technically the reason why uh, I doomed the podcast last week as we yeah, were trying we're to record the ISBA for in our bits and pieces. Uh, problems here. Um, but an interesting business meeting on Friday where school board trustees voted to take the position to call for moving their own elections to November of odd years. What does that mean, Kevin, politically and, and, and practically? What does that change mean? Well, politically, it feels like a compromise or an attempt at a compromise. We've heard over the past couple of legislative sessions, we've, heard, we've covered hearings on this, uh, legislators who really want to see those school board elections move away from May in odd number of years. Um, they kind of have their own place on the ballot, and turnout is very low. Yeah. I think everybody can agree that turnout is, is low. And, you know, we have, Idaho has election turnout issues seemingly whenever you have an election, but those are some of the lowest turnout elections you've got. Uh, Mary Souza, state senator from Coeur d'Alene, has been pushing to try to get uh, school board elections onto the general election ballot. So this would be November in even number years. And that means that when you went to vote for your next governor or your next president or for Congress or for legislature, you'd also be voting for school trustees. Trustees really didn't like that idea, still really don't like that idea, because they don't want to see nonpartisan school board elections on the same ballot with partisan races for governor or president or Congress. So what came out of ISBA this week uh, feels a little bit like a middle ground. You know, if you move the elections to November, but in odd number of years, these school board elections would be on the same ballot with races for mayor and city council. And those are nonpartisan elections. So, and as I read the story from last week, it sounds like, uh, you know, that may... Uh, be a middle ground that uh, Senator Souza is willing to live with. And you know, we'll see how that plays out in the legislature. I think there's interest in the legislature in doing something mm -hmm. about school board elections. And I think maybe there's a realization on the ISBA's part that, well, something's going to happen. So maybe uh, coming up with a middle ground uh, preserves the nonpartisan nature of school board elections while perhaps improving turnout in these elections. So yeah, you know, we'll we'll be watching this during the legislative session. It'll be uh, interesting to see if uh, if this uh, proposal, if this compromise wins the day. Yeah, our Jennifer Swindell, our editor Jennifer Swindell, had done an interview with Karen Echeverria of the Idaho School Boards Association leading up to their conference last week, where uh, talked about how trustees wanted to do something differently, but they realized. Uh, with Senator Souza pushing a proposal that they didn't like, that they were stuck playing defense during legislative sessions, and they thought by taking on their own proposal and voting for that last week, that would give them a chance to play offense and to push for something rather than to try to oppose something else. I think right. that's kind of the dynamic. Uh, and you can right. look... And I, and I think, you know, Karen Echeverry has been around uh, the State House for, for a while. She's been working for ISBA for a while. She, she understands the political... Uh, uh, realities of a situation like this. So I think you know, she's making a calculation that this is uh, perhaps the, the best way to 
to try to get some resolution on this issue. Okay. You can, if you need to get caught up on that, if you missed action from last week's Idaho School Boards Association conference, head to our homepage and head down several stories deep uh, to last Friday. I think the headline talks about trustees voting to move their own elections if you want to get caught up on that story. So we're a few months removed from the summer of ESSA, the summer of the Every Student Succeeds Act. Now we're into the late autumn of (laughs) ESSA. But you're still writing about ESSA. You're still writing about the state's plan to comply with this federal law. And what you wrote about this week, Clark, uh, was uh, some feedback that the state got from a couple of think tanks, kind of a mixed bag. Walk us through what uh, what they had to say. I, I think a mixed bag is a is a good way to describe it, Kevin. This week marked the first chance, really, that we've seen outside groups take a look at Idaho's compliance plan. And the two different groups were the National Council on Teacher Quality mm-hmm. and the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. They went through and analyzed not just Idaho's plan, but all 50 states and D.C.'s uh, plan. And they issued some analysis and some report cards And um, starting with the National Council on Teacher Quality, I talked with their managing director for state policy, and she said what their group is all about is making sure that students have access to highly qualified teachers and that low-income and minority students are not disproportionately receiving education from ineffective or inexperienced teachers. So that's where they're coming from. They gave Idaho high marks, first of all, for defining inexperienced and ineffective teachers okay. uh, within their plan. They said that that was a good thing, that identifying those sorts of things um, helps create problems and helps or helps avoid creating problems and helps make sure that uh, that we're tracking these teachers uh, in the pipeline and that there's an opportunity to make sure that uh, uh, that we know a little bit more about that however they they said Idaho had some work to do also within its plan in a couple of different areas they said that uh, Idaho's plan suffered from uh, robust teacher quality data is, is basically what it said. It said they missed a real opportunity at a chance at transparency there. And so they said that uh, um, missed an opportunity there. The Thomas B. Fordham Institute criticized they Idaho. They were a lot less complimentary. No. Uh, <laughs> they criticized Idaho and a couple of other states for taking an approach uh, to use a data dashboard. And that's kind of a fancy, newfangled term. Uh, to describe basically an online website that would present many different sets of data that, with the idea being that that will give you insight into how your school is performing. That was something so what that, it is, I mean, in, in kind of plain English, is it's multiple uh, measures of school quality, of education quality, but you don't have this bottom line score. Uh, your school gets an A or your school gets a B minus or, or whatever. It's it's not as cut and dried as that. That's exactly right. And, that had and been that's a, their problem with it, the Fordhamans. Right. Uh, that's their problem with it. They said that there's no way to tell bottom line where s- schools stand uh, in comparison to one another, that that was a problem. They dinged Idaho for that. And Idaho education leaders knew that that could potentially be right. a problem. Yeah. The feds had signaled that they wanted some sort of a summative rating or a letter grade rating or a ranking. Uh, but Idaho had had a similar system to that in place, the old five-star rating system. State leaders ended up repealing that under mm-hmm. Tom Luna's administration. And uh, it's proved not very popular. And, and so uh, the Idahoans that gave feedback during the development of this ESA compliance plan said, we don't want another five-star rating system. We don't want a summative rating system because they said that relies too much on the results of one high-stakes test, and they did not think that was fair. And so even though they realized that that could be a potential red flag for the feds, uh, 
state officials went ahead and built in this dashboard model, which dashboard, like you said, is a complicated way of basically talking about a website that presents multiple points of student data. And some of those points are... In addition to test scores, that's one of them. High school graduation rates mm-hmm. would be another one. And then proficiency uh, of English fluency among English language learners would be another one. And then depending on if you're at the high school level versus the elementary school level, there's some different uh, markers and indicators in there. They're going to be launching a student survey at the end of this year. That will go into the accountability plan a little bit. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started to get the first look at feedback this week. It's been interesting. Uh, the state... Department of Education officials say they're taking that to heart, but we have not heard yet from U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She is the one who ultimately uh, gives the thumbs up or the thumbs down. She's the last word here. So what what we're hearing from the think tanks kind of sets the stage and maybe gives us some stuff to keep an eye out for, but it's it's really going to be up to uh, Betsy DeVos and her department. Yeah, and why is this important? You know, we've talked about this all summer, but uh, it's basically Idaho's application to receive millions of dollars in federal funding every year. Uh, But beyond that, it lays out our long-term goals for education, and it lays out uh, an accountability plan in addition to the local plans to basically roll out nine different federal programs. It's a far-reaching document was developed over the course of a couple of years, and it really lays out uh, the future of education in Idaho in terms of our goals and our policy aspirations. And so that's why we've paid so much close attention to it, and that's why other groups are starting to look at it as well, and it's something that we will continue uh, to follow. I think that catches us up for this week, uh, for this week's edition of the Almost Weekly uh... <laughs> Extra credit podcast. If you're listening to us now, it means that our technology worked this week. So <laughs> way to go. Way to go, technology. Yeah, I do want to thank everybody for sticking with us. Uh, we've had a lot of fun with the Extra Credit Podcast, and we always do. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to take next week off for Thanksgiving. Right. Hope you guys have a chance to be with family and friends and loved ones and get a little time off yourself. We will be back the week after Thanksgiving. And, Kevin, by that point, we'll really be looking at end-of-year news and getting ready for that 2018 legislative session, Mm -hmm. which kicks off that second week of January, right? right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much for listening. We're glad to be back this week. We will catch you in two weeks. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good Thanksgiving, and we'll be back in two weeks. Mm -hmm.